Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. In this episode, examining the lives of women legal crusaders you may not have heard about. She was quite a pioneer, and it is fascinating that someone who did as much as she did, accomplished as much as she did, is someone that I personally had never heard of before a couple of months ago. You can visit our website, ladyjusticepod.com, after the show for links to books about all of the women. And later on in the program, the latest numbers are out about the state of women in law firms, which calls for a discussion examining why it might be that women go to law school at the same rate as men, yet there remains a significant lack of women in law firm leadership. I see the numbers, and the numbers have been like this for a very long time, and it has bothered me for a long time. I tried to go the firm route when I had four kids and married to, you know, a husband that worked crazy hours, and I ended up leaving to go to the law school. But that's one of the blessings of a legal career, right? You have all these non-traditional and different options, and that's why I think the law profession is a great career choice for women. You know, this idea of, well, let's look for a qualified, you know, minority. Well, that just starts with the presumption that most minorities are not qualified and you have to dig and find one who is. That's coming up on Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Uh, Welcome back, everybody, to Lady Justice. I'm Bridget Mary McCormick, the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and I am very happy to be together again with my friends, Justice Beth Walker from West Virginia's Supreme Court, Justice Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court, and Justice Eva Guzman from the Texas Supreme Court. And our topic today is one that's near and dear to all of us. Um, It's going to sound a little bit broad, but it is women in the legal profession. Um, And we're going to try and keep the conversation interesting, we hope, and talk about a few things uh, that you don't always hear about when that's the subject. Um, Just to give a little bit of the overview and the backdrop against which our conversation will happen, the National Association of Women Lawyers 2020 survey report is recently out, and um, there aren't any big surprises in it. There's a consistent pattern of a lack of women and people of color, women of color in particular, in the upper tier Uh, tiers of law firm and legal profession leadership more generally. Um, It's less true in the public sector than it is in the private sector, but it's still true that women, although they graduate from law school um, at the same rate as men or slightly higher in many many places, um, something happens along the way and the top tier positions are still largely held by men. Law firms remain reluctant to engage in um, a lot of processes that are most likely to reduce bias, uh, bias decision making. Again, these are findings from the National Association of Women Lawyers 2020 survey report. Um, women are 36% of attorneys, 47% of associates, and 31% of non-equity partners, which is up actually significantly from 2011, but only 21% of equity partners. Um, So they still are uh, struggling to make it to the leadership positions. We're going to start the conversation with, uh, I want to hear from my friends uh, about a woman attorney, a female attorney or judge, who made a big impact in the 20th century, who people who are listening to the podcast today might not know much about. Um, We want to use this as an opportunity to highlight some pretty cool women lawyers. Uh, So I I will start with with you, Eva. Do you want to tell us about some female attorney who had an impact? 
Well, hello, everybody. It's good to be back um, with my friends. And uh, I love this topic because I think th the statistics Bridget just shared with us really highlight um, how far we've come, but also how much we have to do to ensure uh, women have a role and a seat at the table uh, as equity partners and women of color. So I'm going to talk about a woman who was a, uh, a legal crusader who busted barrier after barrier. Um, and she's probably the closest thing we have to a patron saint in, <laughs> as women in the profession. And I'm going back a little bit farther than, than um, probably my, the, my um, fellow um, podcasters, but here we go. She was licensed uh, more than a century ago. Um, she was smart, she was talented, she was industrious, she was purpose-driven, but she couldn't vote. She couldn't hold office. She couldn't even serve on a jury. She had this dream though, she wanted to be a lawyer. And at the time it was virtually unheard of for women to become lawyers. In fact, back when uh, my heroine uh, was pursuing her dreams, women hardly had access to higher education. American law just didn't protect women. Uh, women had no identity apart from their husbands. They couldn't sue. You couldn't bring a lawsuit. You couldn't make enter a contract. You couldn't own property. But I will share a little tidbit about Texas. We were a little ahead of the curve at that time and, and women could own property. But the, the women, the woman that, that I'm um, talking about is Belva Ann Lockwood. She was a young widow, a single mother, and law was her chosen vocation. Um, she went to college, went to law school, but then they wouldn't give her a law degree because she was a woman. So without a diploma, she couldn't gain admittance to the bar. But bold, strong, powerful woman that she was, she took the me bold measure of writing to then president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. She sought his intervention, uh, asked him for justice, and she got it. Uh, with her long-awaited law degree in hand, she became an attorney, wanted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court, couldn't, and um, then eventually, uh, undaunted, was allowed to practice, but look at where we are with the Supreme Court bar today. We still have very few women that advocate before the US Supreme Court. So I'm sharing the story of Belva Ann Lockwood to uh, remind us that um, you know we, we need to continue to pursue with passion, with perseverance, uh, our own goals as women. And she, ended up becoming the first woman to um, argue a case at the Supreme Court. She ran for president of the United States and she did all this as a working mom. So trailblazer seems hardly adequate to describe the legendary Belva Ann Lockwood. Rhonda? Yeah, um, I do wanna say that um, I think it was when um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I was trying to find books about famous women lawyers. And I looked and I, it took me forever to find a book on Belva Lockwood and I did order one, but I had to go search like used bookstores online, which how sad is that to find a book on her when she was so remarkable. Um, so I'm so glad that that's who you chose because she's amazing. Um, I'm gonna talk about Elizabeth Dole and I think that our generation, she's recognizable, her name, but I don't think that some of the younger people that listen to us probably realize her separate from her husband, which happens a lot. 
um, because she was married to Senator Bob Dole, but Elizabeth Dole attended Duke University and graduated from Harvard Law School. Um, she graduated in 1965, and at the time she was one of 24 women in a class of 550. Um, so that was just in 1965. Uh, what is interesting, and one of the reasons I want to talk about her is because she is known for her bipartisanship, which nowadays we need more of that. Um, she um, is known for being sort of this conservative um, Republican, but she started out as she served in the Lyndon Johnson White House administration. And so she has served in both um, parties' administrations. Um, she went on and she was the first woman um, Secretary of Transportation under Ronald Reagan. And then she became the first woman I believe Secretary of Labor. So she's the first woman to serve as two cabinet secretaries under two different presidents. Um, and so she holds that as well. She accomplished a lot during those terms as Secretary of Transportation. She was known as she was um, instrumental of working with MAD and making it where that states that didn't raise their drinking age to 21 um, lost their federal funding for highway dollars. Um, and so that was one of her things. She also is, um, if you have heard of Libby lights, which are the little black, I mean, the little stop lights on your cars in the middle center, those rear lights that came out, that when you stop and you see those lights kind of up high in your car, that cars now are mandated to have, those are Libby lights from her time at the Secretary of Transportation. Um, interestingly, as Secretary of Labor, she initiated the glass ceiling study to identify barriers to senior management opportunities for women and minorities. 60% of her senior staff were women and minorities during her time as Secretary of Labor. Following that, she became president of the American Red Cross. She was the first woman to hold that position since Clara Barton founded it in 1881 which is really startling to me <laughs> that it took that long. Um, she also, like um, Belva, ran for president um, in 2000, and she was a U.S. senator. She established the Elizabeth Dole Foundation dedicated to help caregivers of wounded warriors because her husband was wounded during World War II, um, and she's in the National Women's Hall of Fame. I want to end with one of her quotes that I think maybe all four of us can um, identify with. When she was explaining her role as Secretary of Labor, she said, my objective as Secretary of Labor is to look through the glass ceiling to see who's on the other side and to serve as a catalyst for change for them. And I just think that just embodies sort of maybe what we're trying to achieve here. So um, I think Elizabeth Dole's you know, a true remarkable woman lawyer that we don't want to um, forget or let the younger generations not know about. That's great, Rhonda. Um, thank you and uh, glad to be with everyone again. Hello to my friends. Um, in spite of recent dust-ups about um, the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry, Bridget and I remain dear friends uh, and are undaunted by that, uh, dis one of our sole disagreements actually. Um, so I was kind of, I guess I was thinking along the same lines as Eva, uh, when I was thinking about who to talk about. And I started researching Agnes Westbrook Morrison, who was the first woman graduate of the West Virginia University College of Law, first 
woman lawyer in West Virginia. But going to, uh, I think, Rhonda's point, the problem was there was almost no information about her. I mean, you know, there, she's mentioned frequently by name and she practiced in Wheeling, West Virginia with her husband, but there wasn't a lot of stories. So I started poking around and I found a women's legal history website that Stanford Law School maintains, which is kind of interesting if anyone wants to go Googling there um, instead of doom scrolling, it's a lot more um, interesting. And I learned, I came across a book about a woman lawyer named Clara Fultz. Uh, the book is called Woman Lawyer, The Trials of Clara Fultz. And it was published in 2011 by Barbara Babcock is the author. And that's a little reading assignment if you want to learn more about her. But I will tell you a little bit about Clara Fultz, who was born in 1849 in Indiana and was inspired as a young girl uh, by a speech she heard by Lucy Stone. And you should know Lucy Stone uh, as one of the early um, women suffragettes, um, advocates for the right to vote uh, and rights of women. And um, she, though, Clara, uh, married when she was 15 and started having children. And she had five children. And by the time, by that time, she found herself in California and her husband, um, as they say, uh, I guess, uh, just departed, <laughs> left uh, her with her five children. And she had to figure out a way to, um, to make ends meet and to raise those five children. So she was a single mom as well. And she decided remarkably uh, that she would pursue a career in law. So she was in California in the, uh, in the 1870s. There wasn't a law school yet, although there would be one later. And she was instrumental in um, filing a lawsuit after she became a lawyer to make sure that women could attend that law school that was Hastings. Um, but nonetheless, she decided to become a lawyer and went the route that was uh, done at that time, which was apprenticeship and legal study and eventual sitting for the bar, which was a uh, essentially a verbal oral exam uh, that she took and she passed and she became the first woman lawyer in California in 1878. She, before that, earlier that year, actually had to lobby to change the law in California to allow women to be lawyers, which she did along with some other friends and um, became a lawyer later that year. And I just thought she was really interesting because she was so practical about it. And I'm going to talk kind of about practicalities and one of our other questions on this podcast. Um, she is credited with developing one of the first, if not the first public defender uh, organizations um, so she, and the book, again, I'm not even done reading it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think if you do read about Clara Fultz and other women of that time, I, it, it was a little complicated. I mean, there was a lot going on in the country. It was not, you know, yay women, anti-women. It wasn't that black and white. There was a lot going on with immigrants and their rights or lack thereof. Um, actually, Clara was a lifelong Republican, uh, which might be surprising. Her parents were Lincoln supporters, and so she was. Uh, for most of her life, she spent a little time uh, following some populist stuff that was going on. But um, anyway, Clara Fultz is an interesting trailblazer uh, and someone who just took, a, took stock of her situation and said, what do I need to do to improve myself? And she did and became uh, the first woman lawyer in, some, in California 
and uh, someone who's worth learning about. So I feel like I learned so much already and now I want to go read a bunch of new books. Um, this is why I love doing this. You guys each gave me uh, so much to think about and so much more to learn about. And I'm really excited to go even dig deeper into those three women. I'm, I am um, going to talk briefly about Polly Murray, who I want to just confess right here up top that I had never heard of before a few months ago um, when I first read some of the reviews of this new documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, which I think it premiered at Sundance, and if not, it was sometime um, around then, um, about her. And she was a pretty fascinating um, a woman, lawyer, person, um, who accomplished a whole lot and I never heard about. Um, she was a lawyer, she was a poet, she was a feminist, she was an activist. She became a priest later in life. She literally went to divinity school in her, I think, 80s, um, because why not? She hadn't done that yet. And um, she was also black and she was uh, a lesbian. She even, uh, it seems from her early writing, identified as non-binary or trans. Um, it's hard to, it, 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 it wasn't a time where non-binary and trans were choices women had, um, or people had, I should say. Um, but she really was um, brilliant and fearless and led the way for a lot of doctrinal steps that that came later. So she, when she was in law school, she voiced the idea of challenging the separate in separate but equal basis on the 13th and 14th amendments. Uh, her classmates all thought she was nuts, but of course, uh, some years later, her, her legal thinking turned out to lay the groundwork for Brown v. Board of Ed. She co-wrote a law review article with uh, Justice Ginsburg on the um, early understanding of why the Equal Protection Clause applies to women. Um, decades before Rosa Parks did it, she was arrested for refusing to move to the back of a bus. She just didn't see why she needed to. And uh, that sort of captured her entire life and career. She didn't see the need to do things the way that people expected her to. She saw the need to do them the way she thought was the right way to do them. And she was quite a pioneer. And it is fascinating that someone who did as much as she did, accomplished as much as she did, um, and is pretty important in our sort of jurisprudential architecture is someone that I personally had never heard of before a couple of months ago. So um, and the easy thing about this one is you can just go watch the documentary. My name is Polly Murray, and you can learn a whole lot about her. So if you're too busy for a book right now, I recommend that documentary. Um, and that brings us to my next question. So that was a fun way to start, I think, this conversation to learn a little bit. Um, but we're going to go back to sort of the meat and potatoes of where women are. And I want to start with you, Beth. Um, I'm, I, it, it's sort of striking about Given how many women are graduating from law school, given how talented we know uh, the women are graduating from law school, why are we not seeing an improvement in the profession for women a little more quickly? Why is the percentage of women in leadership roles, why does it continue to sort of lag behind men, um, especially in the private sector, in private law firms, GCs at, at, at companies. Um, you, you had a very successful private practice before you were a public servant. Um, tell me what you think is going on here. 
Well, um, this is a really hard question. And I suppose if I knew um, the sociological answer, I could probably publish a book and all of that. And I, it's a very nuanced and difficult question, but I'll just start really quickly with my own personal experience. I spent 22 years at a, what I would call medium law, not big law, but um, a firm of roughly hundred plus or minus lawyers. Um, most of that time uh, as a partner after seven and a half years. And um, it, you know, I started in 1990 and, and that was 30 years ago. And, you know, I graduated with roughly 50% of the women in my class. And so that part of law has not changed. What, what has not also not changed though, is the number of women in leadership positions. And I think, I mean, the weird thing is my personal experience is I found absolutely no barriers. Um, you know, I, of course, worked really, really hard and made myself smarter or as smart as everybody else. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm the Gen X, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm more patient. I don't have to achieve my, per, my, my, I did not have to achieve my professional goals in three years. I knew that it was going to take a little while and I was happy to invest that time and effort. But I think, and so, you know, it's weird because it's, I see the numbers and the numbers have been like this for a very long time. And it has bothered me for a long time. I remember in the nineties as a, a, the recruiting partner for this firm um, and later on the executive committee for this firm that set compensation. I wondered why are, where's this gap? Why, why do we lose women um, before equity partnership? And then when non-equity partnership came around, what happens? And I think um it's complicated, but part of it is I think we have to be realistic about what law firms and what corporations are. Um, law firms are designed primarily, um, and this is not a radical observation, to make money for partners. I mean, it is a business enterprise, just as a corporation uh, exists and frankly will get sued if they don't uh, make money for their shareholders. Um, so I think like Clara Fultz, you have to be practical about this, this enterprise. You cannot, uh, and I've, I'm not sure that diversity initiatives have served us well, um, because you cannot force a culture to change just by putting on window dressing and saying, okay, we have this diversity team, or we have a diversity policy. Um, you have to change the heart and soul of an organization. That is, remember, you're always remembering that that organization is designed to maximize profits for shareholders or for, uh, or for partners or members or whatever law firms are calling themselves. And I still think um, that the, it's, a, it's a complicated question because sometimes folks are not realistic about what it takes to to succeed in a law firm. And you have to, sometimes you have to, as a woman, sometimes I had to, I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes I did have to work harder. Some, you know, and I had slightly, a slightly different experience than a lot of women because I never had children. So I didn't have that moment when I needed to start um, either being a super mom or balancing or, or finding the supports, uh, frankly, that all of you did at one point or another in your careers. Um, but nonetheless, I think we, I don't think diversity is enough. 
I think that women have to jump in and be leaders. I know that I, as a recruiting partner, looked for women. I know that I mentored women. I know that I made sure. And I think it just takes women doing that. And it sounds terribly simplistic. We have to lean in like Sheryl Sandberg. I like to talk about her uh, book, um, even though I disagree with her politically. Um, you know, what she says about uh, surviving in corporate America is interesting and important. And um, we just have to keep doing that and leading and bringing women along. Um, so I don't have the best answer, but I, I know that it is possible. Rhonda, do you want to respond to Beth? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think they are. I mean, they're money-making organizations. They're not nonprofits, <laughs> you know, law firms. I, I see it, and maybe I see it in the views of um, being married to an OBGYN, is that the women are, you know, you graduate law school at 25, you know, roughly the typical, you know, route. They're getting married 27 to 30, and then 30 to 35 is, you know, prime childbearing years. You know, if you, you do the typical, then, you know, they're hitting those childbearing years right at the peak of when you're hitting the, the peak um, associate billing hours and when they're up for consideration for partnership. And um, so if the firm is not going to make concessions and not um, figure out a way to, to deal with that, you know, if you're expecting them to bill 2,400 hours you know, when they have one, two, and three-year-olds, um, I, I just don't know how you do it. And um, it's really hard. And, you know, I mean, I, I tried to go the firm route when I had four kids and married to, you know, a husband that worked crazy hours. Um, and I ended up leaving to go, you know, to the law school. It wasn't sustainable um, to work those hours with four kids. It just wasn't. And so I think you see a lot of women going, you know, and that's one of the blessings of a legal career, right? Is that you can, you have all these non-traditional and different options. And that's why I think law profession is a great career choice for women. There's so many different things they can do and partnership route doesn't have to be, you know, what they choose. Um, and it, you know, with what they, but I, I don't know how we change um, that, um, there are, from what I see in Arkansas, um, women, more women rising, it feels like to partnership roles and managing partners in some of our big firms. But I think it's, it's partly the women saying, I don't want to make that choice. You know, that's not the choice I want to make for my life. And I can be happy and have a successful practice in life doing something else. Um, they're making the choice to leave. Um, so you, so you said that I'm just going to follow up. I'm just yeah. that you left, you left private practice to go to the law school. And, um, I obviously spent a lot of time on a law school faculty myself, but as you know, um, although the numbers are significantly better now than they were 20 years ago. Now, I think 41% of law school deans are women, but in 2000, it was only 10%. So even leadership within the academy, um, has lagged because by 2000, women were graduating law school in equal numbers of men and had been for some time. Um, so what do you, what do you, I mean, I, 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 I hear and, and take, take to heart your point that you, you'd have more control over your life. And with four kids, that was, that's worth it right there. But what do you make of the sort of leadership divide 
translating even to public sector and um, academic work? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I went to assistant dean. It was around 2001, um, I think. And it may be that that was the school. The school was actually looking, you know, that I was attractive because I was a woman to them, you know, that they maybe it was because I was changing the numbers, right? Um, and they didn't have anyone in that, you know, position. So, you know, maybe that, you know, that was a big plus on my side um, for me. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I think that, you know, women are making different choices. Um, I would like to see women in the partnership and leadership roles, because I think that once you get there, then that's how you change the institution, which is what Beth is saying. You have to yeah. change the institution until you get them as leaders. You can't change the institution. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, but what I hear from young lawyer, women lawyers too, is they say, we want options that are non-partnership options. Um, you know, it's sort of, we don't want it to be all or nothing. Why can't we just work, choose to work here and do great legal work for 20 years and not do the partnership? We don't need to make that kind of money. We're happy with associate money, <laughs> you know, but there's not that, you know, so many of them, it's an all or nothing prospect. How do you Well, and it's that? complicated. I think that's a great observation because it's seen as a lesser pursuit in law firms. If you go to this, you know, they track, they used to call them tracks. I hope they don't anymore. You know, where you're on the quote mommy track or the quote uh, non-equity partner or some other name that they would give it track. And, you know, I've seen a lot of women do that successfully, um, but you really have to be a, a Clara Fultz about it. You have to really trailblaze because you have to overcome sort of the stigma of, you know, perception that, well, she didn't quite cut it to be a partner. No, but she was forming her own path um, for her circumstance. And I've seen lawyers do that really successfully, but it takes a lot of, of perseverance. And sometimes that's hard in, a, in, in choppy waters uh, in, in a law firm or in a, in a general counsel's office. Well, first, right, I want to bring Eva into this conversation. Oh, I'm sorry, Rhonda. I, had a, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say, um, I was going to say, I, I think in Arkansas that their firms don't have that track yet. Um, oh, it's not even an option. Yeah, yeah, I think that's not there yet. All right, I want to bring Eva into this conversation. I, you know, we have to um, be honest about the fact that the data is even more discouraging for women of color, significantly more discouraging, actually. And um, I think that has enormous costs to um, our profession. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about why that is and what are some strategies for improving? Well, as, as the mom of a, a, a young lawyer who's clerking for a federal judge right now, I love this conversation and, and uh, what uh, Rhonda and Beth shared and you, Bridget, about, uh, you know, where we are as women, um, at, you know, in, in the profession and what options are available. So those are fascinating things to think about. And I hope that our audience, uh, particularly those making decisions, at firms, um, you know, really uh, are more mindful about it. And I guess that's where I'll begin with uh, the women of, of color. Um, the, we do need to, to find ways to um, bring women of color into more leadership roles. And I think the way to do that, um, there, there are some, there's so many uh, different approaches and the first one is to be mindful about it, about the need for it, 
and what the benefits are. And I don't think that creating a diverse business environment um, actually in, in any way diminishes a law firm's ultimate goal, which this, you know, this is the American way. And, and it's wonderful that if you work hard, you reap the, the benefits of your hard work. But I, I don't think it, it diminishes sort of that ultimate goal of business success. But it does require uh, law firms to be very intentional and to react um, not just react to, um, you know, Coca-Cola saying we want a more diverse uh, <laughs> legal team, which they did recently, but to be proactive about that and to really think about what it's going to take to highlight talent. So there, so there are a number of things that I've been um, thinking about, you know, and one of them, it, you mentioned um, the legal um, arena, the, you know, uh, law schools. So if you look at moot court teams and mock trial teams, there, there aren't as many students of color on this, these teams. And there are a number of reasons. A lot of them are first gens or, you know, they just don't have the, the mentorship in place. So our law schools, you know, we need more mentorship and more outreach to students of color to help them be as successful. They have everything that it takes to be as successful as anyone else. Um, collaborations, um, law firms can collaborate with um, state bar groups and other affinity bars to, uh, you know, this is what we're looking for. How can you, tr you know, train and uh, this, this workforce? Um, I mentioned mentorship. And then finally, I think listening and learning, seeing it as a, um, a way to uh, not only increase the bottom line, but also to honor our commitment to the rule of law. When the public sees a more diverse uh, judicial system, it increases their confidence and their perception that the system is fair, that the, that the system serves you know, its citizens the way, the way it should. And so there's so many benefits that, that trickle down from this you know, commitment to a diverse workforce. And we all have a role in that. And um, I think I saw an article, I'll close with this. I saw an article um, in, in January in, in, on law.com and it talked about, corporate counsel uh, really making this push to see more diverse legal teams and uh, <laughs> being sometimes one of the few diverse uh, uh, women on calls. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's just, you know, this idea of, well, let's look for a qualified, you know, minority. Well, that just starts with the presumption that most minorities are not qualified and you have to dig and find one who is. And just, um, it, I've just started calling that out on calls now. So if I'm on your board and you say that, you might hear from me. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think it begins with uh, just being mindful about what we can do as a legal community. So I'm, I'm glad we're having the conversation. Back to Bridget. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that, that uh, I... I think a lot about um, how to, especially this year, about how to bring about, you know, sort of significant change in systems. Um, I spent a lot of time focusing on the, the criminal justice system in Michigan and more recently the civil justice system. And as you all know, uh, we've seen uh, technology disrupt what we do in courts in a significant way in the last 20, you know, last 12 months. And 
So I think a lot about how to make sure that we take advantage of this moment to come through the crisis we're in with um, a better system, a better system for for lots of people. And I, I do, and I worry a little bit about the divide between the private, the sort of private practice of law, which um, has its own inputs and outputs, and then what we do in you know state courts and in sort of the, the 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 public part of the public sector part of of what we do. And I, I was pr pretty impressed with Bradley Gayton, who's the general counsel at Ford's. I'm sorry, he was the general counsel at Ford. That's how I know Bradley, but he went to Coca-Cola. Um, and their, their uh, demand for the law firms that they hire to have a certain level of diversity, that will, that will make a difference, right? So I think to the, in the private marketplace, there is a big role to play um, for the businesses that hire law firms. Um, Bradley Gayton showed that. I think um, he was first, but I bet we'll see more. In the, in the public sector though, it, you know, uh, it's a little bit, I think a lot of what my friends have already said, all of us making sure we make a priority of moving the leadership positions to look more like our communities. Those of us who are in leadership right now have an obligation to make sure that, you know, to the extent we have an opportunity to promote, support uh, people of color, uh, women of color in particular, um, we have to do it. And uh, we're not in these positions for ourselves. We're in these positions to, to serve the public. And I 100% agree with my friend Eva that the public has more confidence in our justice system when it better reflects our communities. So I think we have an obligation to do what we can. And when we're in a position uh, like the ones we're in now, we do have some of those opportunities. So if you're listening to the pod and you're uh, a woman, especially a woman of color, and you're thinking of running for office or applying for some job, reach out to us. We want to support you. Um, okay, next question. Um, women are more likely to be in leadership positions in public sector legal jobs. So on the bench in most states, women are between 30 and 35%, um, but not nearly at the rate that you'd expect, especially given what we talked about a little bit earlier uh, when, when Rhonda was talking that sometimes public sector jobs are more flexible and might, uh, you know, be a better choice for I don't not just women but people who want their lives to have other things in them besides work, um, which I think includes men sometimes, right? Some men. Um, so, what do we think the barriers are to women getting to the bench in particular, since that might be one that we know about a little bit, um, or to the extent uh, we know a little bit about government positions. Uh, leader, leadership positions in government as well. And I guess I'll start here with you, Rhonda. So um, honestly, I think Beth talked about this maybe on our last podcast that maybe some of the obstacles are that ourselves, <laughs> that we are our own obstacles. Um, and it's um, us, one, just deciding to run um, and us having the confidence is that, um, that women, we think that we either won't win or we think that, you know, we can't win or we don't have the right connections. And so I, I like to think that just the four of us maybe being out there talking about first generation and maybe not what people would think of as your typical Supreme Court justices <laughs> will encourage women. Um, so maybe just also getting out of our own way and, you know, women feeling like they can do it. Um, that that's an obstacle. I think that um, one is just the women juggling time is the whole 
you know, stereotypic women having extra family, maybe obligations and all that going on in their lives that do they get out and then make the community, you know, connections and things that they need to run for office. Um, but I think um, I want to be careful here that that we don't at all su suggest that it's that women can't run for office and, and win. And so I think, you know, we're four examples of women that did. And so I think um, when I look back at the last election in Arkansas, I think with maybe one exception or almost every woman that ran for a judicial office in Arkansas won. So I think that that's changing. And so one of the biggest obstacles is just going in and paying the filing fee and running, <laughs> you know, and just making that first step and being willing to, fa to fail, even if you fail the first time. And then, you know, Beth and I have done the lose election, you get out and you run again. Um, and so I think to me, it's the willingness to put yourself out there um, or if it's an appointed system to make the call and put your name in the hat and say, I want it and I want that and, and to do that. So to me, it's just being convinced you can do it um, and having that self-assuredness. And it's different than maybe when a lot of us started that, you know, to tell young women, you can do this um, and then making that choice. So I'll just add, I, I think uh, women um, empowering uh, each other is a critical component of, of, you know, seeing more women running and more women feeling uh, confident in, in the choice to run. I agree with everything um, Rhonda said, um, but I think we can do a lot to encourage sort of that next generation of women leaders. Um, and I know on some of the boards that, that I serve on, I am very intentional about making sure that there are other women from, you know, Texas or, you know, other, um, it, on one particular board, and I was the only Latina, and I made sure that I reached out and, and brought up a, a young Latina, and they love her now. Oh my gosh, she is, I'm so proud of her. She is an amazing leader. So we can um, do our part to ensure that um, that next generation of women leaders feels really confident and lighting someone else's candle does nothing to diminish our own candle. Kind of beautiful. I, I kind of feel like I should wrap right now because I love that. Um, but I'm going to ask another question um, and I'm gonna try and answer it myself and then maybe ask Beth to comment on it. I'm, I'm, I, 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 as I said before, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about comprehensive systems change because we're seeing so much happen in courts in particular and the legal profession uh, as a result of this pandemic. But, but you do read story after story about how terrible the pandemic has been for women in particular. I think just last week, Vice President Harris um, said it's a national emergency, how many women are leaving the workforce. I know I read a story either in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times a couple of months ago about women specifically leaving the legal profession um, during the pandemic that was quite alarming. Um, but maybe I'm an optimist, but I keep wondering if some of the change that we are seeing, if it becomes permanent, if we are, if we really do things differently, whenever this pandemic is behind us, um, if it might in fact improve things for women in the legal profession. So 
the fact that we've all learned that technology is something lawyers don't have to be afraid of seems to me to be uh, potentially a big benefit for people who want to structure their workday in a different way. You know, when my kids were little, I, I had a laptop, but I certainly didn't have the ability to do the work I can do now, basically from anywhere. And so that sometimes meant hard choices um, on any given day. And not only that, um, there are, you know, all, there is all kinds of innovation creeping up in our profession in a way it didn't used to, right? Lawyers, judges have been pretty good at avoiding innovation. Um, some of that is perfectly understandable. We're a profession based on uh, adherence to rules that were made in the past that kind of defines us. That's, uh, you know, that's what we learn how to do in law school. We, it usually makes us kind of the biggest bummer in the room if it's a business, you know, in, 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 that they, people don't, people only want to call a lawyer when they have to. Um, but it has meant that we've resisted innovation in a way that not hasn't necessarily um, helped, in my view, uh, restructure the way lawyers work, even the way courts work, the way judges work, in a way that might make it um, a bit of a silver lining for for opening up the profession to more people um, who who want to be able to live a life in addition to their work. So I'm seeing a little bit of a silver lining if in fact we succeed in coming through the pandemic with more ways to work, more flexible ways to work, um, more innovation generally that's gonna you know, allow different kinds of um, things that lawyers can do that might appeal to more diverse communities. And I even think that we are at a moment where there is a significant chance that we we even rethink a lot of the ways in which we structure law school accreditation. Um, so to the extent that law school accreditation, I think, makes it difficult for certain um, communities to, to go to law school, we might be able to rethink all of that in this moment. So I'm seeing silver linings. Uh, I wonder, Beth, if you, if you think I'm crazy. And by the way, I didn't, I wasn't going to mention it, but I am so grateful that you were a very good sport about your bad sports weekend. But what do you think about my silver lining? <laughs> well, I, I uh, first of all, thank you. Um, because I'm accustomed to having bad sports weekends from time to time as a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan. So, um, you know, we can, we can adjust and roll with it. And plus I have family in Michigan, so I would not want to endanger their safety in any way. <laughs> by being too hard on the fans of the Wolverines. Anyway, I share your optimism and I don't think you're crazy. The, you know, sometimes big change is not something that's chosen, but is kind of forced on you. And there is no doubt that this pandemic has forced big change. I mean, we're sitting here doing this podcast, looking at each other uh, on Zoom windows and, you know, we wouldn't have done that a year ago. I wouldn't have known what, Zoom, I didn't know what Zoom was um, until a year ago. And so I think that um, it, it does, it, and, you know, I'm, I'm disheartened, of course, by some of the, the writing about women leaving and, but it might just be a readjustment. Um, because I think that one advantage that women have is we are very flexible and creative. And this plays into, 
lots of times opportunities in when you when you combine the fact that we've had to do everything differently and women have the ability to take advantage of opportunity in terms of change and all of that i think it's a wonderful opportunity i think that you know we we've seen women uh who have been able to excel at home I mean, literally unable to go to the office for months. As I understand, there are, are still law firms that limit folks in the office and, you know, in some of the cities. And of course, you know, with all of the weather over the winter, we've had uh, some challenges, I know, in, in Eva State for sure. But I think I'm going to share your optimism and say, you know, we've we've got some new tools now and let's use them. Um, it, you know, our profession doesn't love to change and it's hard to change a culture, but we're poised to do that if we want to go ahead and roll with it. And I think we should. All right. I'm going to ask a couple of lightning round questions. So short answers to each of you, um, and we'll just go through them. First one is, what is the single piece of advice you'd give to a woman starting law school right now? Rhonda, can I start with you? Yes. So um, probably the main thing that I tell everyone is that they're professional reputation starts the day one of law school. So um, I think a lot of times people think that, you know, school, school and profession is when they get out. But I say first day of orientation, that's when your professional reputation. So from that day, you treat everyone with kindness, your work ethic, um, everything about it begins that first day. So um, how you are going to act that that's will carry with you um, through the rest of your career, the next you know, 40, 50 years as a lawyer. Um, so that's my advice is to act as a professional and with ethics and kindness from that first moment. Eva. I would say be bold. Don't be afraid to show up, speak up and stand up. Uh, that means trying out for law review and moot court and going for those internships, just be bold. Beth. And I would add, um, stay out of debt if you can, or minimize it. Um, it's it's such a mundane topic, but coming out of law school with a house worth of debt really does limit your options. So be be thinking about that before you go. Um, I I endorse every single thing all of my friends said, and I so I will add, um, find your people, um, your people in terms of just the classmates who um, you have enough in common with that they're there for you when it's not always fun. Law school isn't always fun, can be fun, not always. Um, and your faculty people as well. There will, be, there will be mentors in that law school and the sooner you find them, the better. So find your people. Okay, next question. Same question, but what, is, what would you say to a woman just graduating from law school today? Or maybe it's a few months from today. Um, why don't we start with you on this one, Eva? There's a lot of advice that that I think after a long 30 year career in the law, but I would say where your journey begins is not necessarily where it will end and every failure along that journey is a new beginning and every victory is um, a, a representation of everything that you've experienced along the way. So enjoy the victories and don't spend too much time on the failures. Just start over. They happen and, and just start over. So I'm going to um, apply to a woman graduating from law school, the advice in a different way that Rhonda gave and, um, and say it as don't burn bridges. 
Um, you are in this for 20, 30, maybe more years. And even in large states, certainly in smaller states like West Virginia and Arkansas, but even in large states, the person that you think is your enemy in year two, maybe somebody that you that becomes a colleague in year 10 or 15 or um, that that can help you. And so um, keep keep the long game in mind and don't burn bridges. I think I'm going to build on that. I, I again agree with everything everyone has said. And in addition to um, having the long game in mind, I want to say, but don't be too wedded to a specific plan. Be open to calling an audible. Um, I, I I feel like my entire career is audible, so I never I never meant to be uh, a judge. Um, I never meant to be a law professor. I never meant to be most of the things I was. But um, things happen that opportunities present themselves and you need to be open to them. And if you have too much of a plan that you're committed to, you might miss um, good opportunities. So your first job is just your first job. Be open to what shows itself along the way that you might not have thought about. And Rhonda. Yeah, so that's funny, Bridget, because so my advice is the first job doesn't have to be the job. Um, so that it's okay to change careers. Um, and that's one of the blessings of the legal profession. So I'm right there with you. All right, next one. How often does your husband get asked how he manages work-life balance? Beth. I love this question. And of course the answer is never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't either. And I have to say, um, I think the, the, the reason why he doesn't get asked is because they assume it's because I manage it for him. I mean, I have like a super talented husband. He's a partner at Latham. He was the deputy White House counsel. He was on the law faculty. He's done a lot of, he's a very, very, very talented lawyer. I honestly think he has no idea how to pay a bill. I mean, I, I literally am his work life balance and I will, I just said it out loud. There you have it. Uh, Rhonda. So I think I'm going to break probably the, this you know, trend, but my husband does get asked that, but that's because he's like delivering babies at 2 a.m. And they're, you know, they get asked like, when do you sleep? <laughs> when do you eat? So um, he does get asked that, um, but it's because his job, um, especially. How about you, Eva? I'm going to say my husband is my work-life balance because he's just, he's a partner in all of it. And, um, yeah, I don't think he gets asked the question, but honestly, he's my work-life balance. All right. And finally, what is the, the perfect number of women on a state Supreme Court? And why is it five or seven or nine? All right, I'm kidding. Um, I, but this is my, but what I really mean is, do you, and we all have different numbers of women on our courts, but I am now two months in, not quite month and a half into um, a Michigan Supreme Court with four women, the first time I've ever been on the court with four women. Um, and um, it's been uh, exciting. I, I don't think it's because of gender, but I will say that all of my women colleagues show up every day with a lot of energy, a lot of interest in the administrative work of the court. And um, not just that, they're hilarious. So they're making the job really fun. So I am very, very grateful for all of the women um, who I am serving with right now. Um, Rhonda, what is the uh, best number of women on the Arkansas Supreme Court? So, um, you know, I don't know anything different because I came on the court in 15 and we, that's when we transitioned to four out of seven. And so to me, it's sort of the perfect number and I don't know a difference. I'd like to be, you know, the Ginsburg and say seven out of seven, but um, I think, you know, out of fairness that 
I like to have everybody represented. So um, I, I sort of think we're at the perfect mix um, right now. Eva? Well, for a long time, for over a decade, there were two of us and that was great. And let me just say, I love my male colleagues. Uh, we have so much fun and, but now we're four and, you know, I've really enjoyed having other women around the table. Um, they're brilliant, they're scholars, but um, we also have fun in, in ways that uh, maybe, you know, with men, you're not talking about, you know, the Ferragamos or necessarily the, you know, the grandchildren in my, in, you know, some cases I, or, or, you know, the adult children that we have. And so it's been fun. Uh, I don't know that there's a perfect number, but I know that it is great to see more women on our state's highest court for a lot of the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, I should have said that, of course, none of us want anyone to replace our male colleagues. We want to keep all of them. They're amazing. We just, I'm just talking about how many more women we want to have. Uh, Beth. So uh, as I've talked about before, but I'll um, mention briefly in case you haven't listened to a prior podcast, when I went on the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, there were three out of five women. And that was pretty awesome. Um, currently in 2021, that we, I am one out of five. And I will tell you, that is not the best number. Um, I think it needs to be at least two or three. I don't think it has to be five. I agree with Rhonda. Um, but I think it needs to be more than one. Well, I bet someday it will. Um, as always, it was so great to talk to you guys. And I look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Visit our website, ladyjusticepod.com, for more information about this podcast and to listen to other episodes. Opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Till next time.